0: an important question what if you get coerced into this world because other big players start betting on web3 from seven ctos my name is etienne de bruin and you're in the cto studio kind of reminds me of the whole single sign-on thing where you had to start integrating Facebook logins and Google logins because the, the, the internet's expected that. And so what if the next social login is a Metamask-ish style? I
1: think any crypto site that you go to today, almost the first thing you do is it's like log in with your Metamask wallet or something. So there's a decent component of at least new areas and new sites that are going in this direction so. yeah
0: so i purchased the seven ctoseth domain name and what i did was i had to connect my metamask wallet to the ens domain service it was a fairly harmless process clicking windows and connecting and yes and accept and
2: i think what you're going to see a lot of is you're going to see a lot of new companies it didn't exist before, building new things that weren't conceivable before in the space. And I think a lot of the existing companies are going to have a, a, a sort of, not a hard time, but a, they're going to have to think through what their approach is going to be to enter the space in much the same way that companies were forced into the web 2 space. And so when you look back at the companies that won web 2 and, and that had these massive networks of massive ecosystems and so forth. Uh, most of them didn't exist in 1990s, maybe Google and Amazon, but other than that, like most of them didn't exist in the web one world, so to speak. And and so the question then you have to ask is what benefits, like like, like you are saying before, uh, can you get for something like this? And I think the benefits aren't necessarily what you think they're going to be. Like in the case of a lot of the companies that they're trying to bring in blockchains internally, but they don't want the exposure of public data. Like they'll go with Hyperledger and you're getting the benefits of a blockchain. You're getting the benefits of something like Hyperledger, but you're not really getting the benefits of the Web3 ecosystem and the distributed computing and all of those. Areas. And so the question really becomes like, are you just doing it because you want the benefits of immutability or is there something about your data? Is there something about your what you're trying to build that is going to benefit from the ecosystem, from building smart contracts and and having all this stuff publicly out there and and available, that sort of thing. And and that's going to be very hard for a lot of companies to determine. And so I think the easy route, especially for enterprise, is going to be the hyper ledgers. It's going to be the private blockchains, but you don't really get the full benefit of the ecosystem and go down that route. I'm totally
1: agreeing with you, Michael. I think I've talked to a few companies now that are trying to develop private blockchains and that sort of thing. And honestly, I think the business case is pretty weak there. And it's just an extremely expensive, slow, annoying database that doesn't benefit from some of the network effects that
3: you're getting out of the public blockchains. So it's, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that? So Etienne mentioned getting sucked into Web3 against your will as like a defensive measure. I, I I think it's important to recognize here, where is the pressure coming from to move to Web3? And it's not coming from Facebook. It's not coming from Google. This disrupts their business model of owning your data. I don't anticipate these large players who who exist to monetize your data are going to be making any like radical moves to Web3. It's the demand is coming from the user, right? The user is I don't want to give away my information anymore and I want to be able to own and monetize my own data, my own creations. So I think for CTOs, this is actually going to be About seeking out new user bases and who have the, who actually need Web3 technologies. And that's going to be content creators who want to monetize their data and monetize their creations better, get a better margin on the things that they create and people like that. So I think there's just going to be new classes of applications that serve new classes of users. And that's where the shift is going to come from.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point because. I think a lot of people are talking about Web3 as though it's going to replace Web2, and I think that's a completely incorrect view. It's just at the margins, maybe it'll replace a few things, but it'll mostly just grow on top as an add-on as capability that Web2 can't easily achieve. And it will be a new thing. And so the idea of finding new users seems exactly right to me.
2: When you talk about privacy concerns, we're always talking about privacy concerns from the point of the user. We don't talk about privacy concerns from the perspective of the company itself. The company that's building these tools on Web3, if you're building tools that you want, like private data and, and, and storing data and you're using it as a database, you have to remember that, that it's not just the user's privacy concerns that you have to be ordered. To, it's your own. And you don't have the privacy that you would have if it were just your, your local stored database and that sort of thing. And you do have some coins out there like that, Zcash, Monero, that sort of do the privacy bit, but they do it almost like a shell game, right? Like, like Monero is a little bit of a shell game and how it handles privacy. Zcash probably does it the best just in terms of the whole two out, one in. Situation, but all of that stuff could eventually be retrograde. Like you can figure that information out. And so when you're talking about privacy from a corporate perspective, you're not just looking at your users' privacy in terms of their information and things attached to their wallet, but you're looking at your own corporate information and your competitors having access to it. And your competitors investing lots of money into figuring out what you're doing and how you're doing it and, and, and being able to maybe reverse engineer what you're doing based off of the, the metadata that's in the chain. And that sort of thing. So there's a whole plethora of things that you have to think about.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the keys to, to thinking about blockchain as a database is to understand that by default and with only extremely complex efforts, will you avoid it being public, like all the information in that database being public. And so if you have data that wants to be public and needs to be public, this idea of write once, read many or something like that then I think it can be a good solution.
0: So can I riff a little bit on the user owns their data? Is it really, is it data that's encrypted in the blockchain with my private key? Is that what it means? Private
2: data transactions, basically. Like you you take your wallet with you wherever you go. You interact with whatever app you choose to interact with. But at the end of the day, like that information is associated to your wallet, associated to you, it's not necessarily associated to the company.
0: So in other words, if I'm a company that is fully Web3 and I have this gorgeous product, I am basically through your wallet asking you for permission to access your data, which without your decryption of your data on the blockchain, I will not have access to that. Is that. Does that sound right? That's
2: pretty good in terms of approximation. I don't think anyone has cracked that, that, that chain yet in terms of like how to do that successfully from a, from outside of the financial space, right? Outside of monetarily financial, like I'm giving you X amount of tokens. You're giving me X amount of, of token, of information or ETH or whatever the case is. Like most of that kind of stuff has been, has happened within the financial sense.
0: Okay. But so my first flaw in the system is my. Ownership of my data is only as good as my recollection and safety of my private key or my wallet.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is the incredibly big challenge is if there's anything CTOs have learned, it's that people are terrible about
0: passwords, about security, about anything. But then it's not just, can I not lose my wallet? It's the fact that I can have multiple wallets. I feel like this whole, the human wants to own their data and having a very small, like already from the population, you have a very small group of people who understand what a wallet is. And of that very small group of people, some of them are accidentally throwing out their hard drives into landfills. I just think that it's really asking a lot of the user to be able to keep their data not only accessible to the company that wants to add value to it.
3: I don't think you're going to have to work hard to find the soft underbelly of Web3 as it exists now. As Augustine said, it's the worst database you'll ever use at this point. Running your application on the EVM, you're not going to be a happy camper if you're used to running applications in the commercial public cloud. We have a long way to go, and there are some thorny computer science problems to solve before we're going to be able to rebuild Facebook on Web3. But I think the most important aspect of Web3 is why it's happening, right? We're not using blockchain to build distributed databases because the databases that we have aren't performant enough. The problem is that we want to have networks of public trust that don't have anything to do with these centralized authorities. So we'll find out if the juice is worth the squeeze once we invest all of these resources into building these platforms,
2: will we not? I think the users will come with these platforms as they come. Like, how hard was it to convince your grandma not to write her password on her sticky and put it up on her monitor, right? Like, that's a problem that we've had for almost 30 years. And, and, and it still happens and people still do it. And so the security implications of somebody having these long 18-word passwords that they have to remember just to be able to initialize their wallets. And then they use their wallets on their phones. They use their wallets on their computers. They forget where those 18 words are. They, they don't put them in a safe. They leave them in a drawer and suddenly they can't get into their wallet again and they can't get that back that sort of thing. Like those aren't the same sort of pain points that I can see that I saw with just password rememberings, 26 character passwords that nobody can, can remember. And they just write down on a notebook that sort of thing. I think the pain points are the same in my opinion. Uh, for what we we just, we just we've gone through that pain point already. And we're going to have to go through this pain point as well.
1: Yeah, I've, obviously, what Michael's saying is exactly right. I think the challenge, of course, is that a lot of the we'll call it the hype or the boosterism around Web three is this idea of decentralizing things, quote unquote, but and not giving Facebook or, or Google your data. Now, there's a reason that I use Gmail. And it's because Gmail does an awful lot of good things for me so that I don't have to run my own private mail server because that would be an, a complete nightmare. And so it introduces new problems. Now, not to be too negative about it because it introduces significantly new opportunities. It's just a question of being really clear-eyed about what the upsides of those new opportunities are. I think the idea of putting your database in on, on the blockchain, that's obviously insane but like tiny important pieces like identity and that sort of thing, I mean, that's probably pretty sane,
3: maybe.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking through the idea that the world that Web3 wants to be the foundation of is the world that doesn't exist in the, in, in the real world. So I feel if you think about NFT being... a a frenzied proof of ownership of a digital asset right if you think of self-sovereign identities which was so big five years ago on the blockchain where it was so important to have an identity that could be mapped to me if you think about the different technologies if there's a confluence of web 3 is actually like trying to be the metaverses or the this the There's a world that doesn't exist in flesh and bone that has to be the metaverse as maybe one expression of that. Then I can understand how the complete immutability of it, in other words, just like I can't take this hand and put it on someone else's body, my hand is immutable, right? It can't can't be taken off my body how does that get replicated in the metaverse well through a blockchain immutably connected cpu thingy if i purchase this coffee mug and it's mine and it's only mine and how does that get replicated in this is and this is immutable i suppose i can throw it on the floor and it breaks but there's this replication of the real world into the metaverse that Now I'm starting to say, wow, okay, Web3 is actually the web, is the internet of the world that doesn't exist and hasn't been created yet. And we have seen faint glimmers of. That's where I'm going with this right now.
3: I I think you hit the nail on the head at this whole world that Web3 is supposed to enable just doesn't exist yet. We talk about decentralized finance like Nation states are just going to allow that to happen. We we talk about having a social network on, built on Web3 that, and so there's no middleman to take rents, which is what Facebook does, and that Facebook and Google are just going to lie down and allow this to happen. You've mentioned a number of uh, technological challenges that Web3 faces in becoming a reality. We can think of those all day, but there are also tons of regulatory and also just societal barriers to making it happen
4: feels like Web3 right now feels to me a lot like when Linux came around. You had to have these hackers and people who really love computers and set up the stuff on the command line. And maybe you can get your graphics to work today or maybe you can't. But forget about audio, Eh, except it works for a month and then it doesn't. There's a lot of stuff that'll be like that. I think it's going to be a long time before grandma starts using it. Now, I say that. But when the, your grandkids sets up MetaMask for grandma, maybe she'll go into the land or the sandbox or something. But in the interim, I, I do see a lot of value, like the, the MetaMask wallet like lets you get into your stuff. And there could be private blockchains like your doctor and your hospital and your whatever medical repositories where you can get in and see it without having to have an act of Congress. You can get into financial records. You can make contracts like wills. So There's the DeFi. You can do loans and, or you can create art. And one of the real intriguing things that I read about this week was so you can have royalties. You can put in the smart contract, some kind of code that causes a small fee every time something's resold. And you can limit, okay, I'm only going to sell a thousand copies of this. But when I do, every time it's resold, I get a little piece of that. And instead of maybe one, I make one painting and sell one copy, maybe I sell 500 artists make 500 prints and that's it. Well, maybe they do it this way. And uh, I guess my last thought on this is that with Web3, since it feels a lot like Linux, I wonder if there's a Web4 coming after it that's a lot more friendly to the common consumer. I love the
1: the analogy with Linux because
4: at least many of us are old enough to, to
1: remember when. Now Linux, oh, like companies are going to be able to own their own code and they're not going to be beholden to IBM and Microsoft and et cetera, et cetera. And you even saw people like like the CEO of Red Hat saying stuff like this. 20 years later, IBM buys Red Hat for $34 billion. And it turns out people do like centralization. And I think the the broader point is that the thing that I see as a risk is people thinking of decentralizing de- decentralization as an end goal as opposed to a useful feature for certain things. Like sometimes decentralization is good and sometimes centralization is good. And uh, as CTOs, I think the challenge is to really understand deeply which of those
2: situations applying for one or the other. As a, a longtime Linux desktop user, I definitely love the Linux analogy. Like that, that in my mind works perfectly because you get a lot of, of the hacker culture, hacker, hacker ethos in the space right now. Uh, they're primarily focused on just what do we build? How do we build it? And they're not worried about, and that's not to say that's a good or bad thing, but they're not necessarily worried about how do I make a fortune here? Or how do I do a new SaaS business there? Like those people will come and those people are coming to that sort of side of the house. But I love the idea, much like Linux, that this has started as a, as a hey, how do we pull this off? And now that we pull it off, how do we implement this technology in a way that makes people actually use it? And it's very Linux.
0: The Linux analogy is interesting for me also because right now when startups are booting up their apps, right? they are compiling against hundreds, if not thousands of open source libraries that they don't know how it all works, right? Even the kernel, all that kind of stuff that it runs on being prettified by analytics dashboards or throughput dashboards or whatever, but IO bound scaling. These are things that unless you know about kernels and sockets and Unix, you don't really need to know that stuff. So a lot of, a lot of, Apps that are, if we can analogize that with Web3, a lot of the Web2 apps are just, they exist built on the backs of extensive libraries and open source communities. And we referred to the Log4j issue the other day as Poetic. So, is, you know, is, and that is Web2. Web3 being the everyone, like I said, we said last time, everyone fighting over what is the blockchain, what's the interoperability, how do we build this. I tried to start a Solana project the other day, and it was hard. It was very hard for me as a developer, as a software guy. And but all those layers, we're in the primitives land now, I suppose, And but all of those layers get added, which is, oh, I clicked a button and I had a million users the next day, something like that.
3: I think that a lot of the things that you said were just what needed to be said because Yes, Web3 is, the analogy between Linux and Web3 is wonderful, Ken, because remember, no one asked for Linux. Linux just showed up because the people who created Linux hated all these closed source operating systems. They were just sick of it so that we're just going to write our own. And you've got a similar thing going on with Web3 where they're like, we're just sick of these centralized entities like Google and Facebook running our lives, we're just done with it. So we're going to build this new software platform. But I want to get to what Et originally posed on this call. So like, what should CTOs be doing and thinking about with regard to Web3 and the current businesses they might be in? So I think the conversation behind this call have really set us up to be able to answer this question right now. You have to recognize the primitive state of the software. It is like Linux 1.0. There are tons of unsolved technical issues that have to be Solved before we can really roll these types of applications out at scale, these distributed apps out at scale. And so I think the major deciding factor that you need as a CTO to figure out whether you need to invest now is that your users have to have a really compelling interest in the things that web, if there's a compelling need for a trustless infrastructure. Or maybe you service a a customer base that's creators. Those are like compelling use cases for what Web3 can do right now. If you have some other type of business, like just run-of-the-mill e-commerce or something like that, you may want to wait a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. If we look around at what are the Web3 things that have found, we'll call it product market fit already, like that are people people are using and are happy with, it's clearly financial transactions. Everything from loans to remittances across countries, stuff like that is, there's definitely, it's pretty hard to deny that there's value being created for people, real people, not value in the sense of I'm going to buy something and it's going to go up, but like actual value. Identity is definitely, there's going to be a solution here for identity. I think DAOs, Distributed Autonomous Organizations, are an incredibly interesting area for experimentation. Like it's a little sandbox where we can run experiments in governance i think that something's got to come out of that but past maybe these things and when i say financialization like securitization of art and that stuff too past these things i think the question is still very much open as to what other real tangible value can people get out of this
2: yeah the the other thing that like i I agree with you that it's going to be difficult for people to find value but primarily if they aren't digging into it if they aren't looking into it if you're merely coming at it from the from the waterfall perspective of i have to have a plan and i have to know what that plan is before i put any resources or any time or energy into researching this into digging into this like this if you have an rd department if you have an rd approach to things like this needs to be your R you're not going to know what you have to build until you do the research and you've dug into it and you've built some stuff with it and not everything that you build is going to 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 make sense on everything that you build. Or that you play around with, like Etienne mentioning, like it's hard stuff to do when you're just getting into it, but so was everything else that we've built thus far, right? So is like building distributed infrastructure at AWS. And eventually we learned that we can do it with our eyes. So I think a good answer to that question is you're not going to know until you start digging in, until you have your people start digging in. And the, to go back to the thing that I said in the last episode that we did, I think the big thing that crypto is missing right now is creativity. Everything is focused on the hyper finance side of things that there isn't really like a creativity of apps coming up. Like We haven't really seen a zenith of what's possible because it's it, like everybody's so focused on tokens and, and making money that they haven't really gotten to the point where everybody's really being creative with this stuff.
3: Yeah, I, I I agree, Michael. In in Web 1.0, email was like the killer app. And so it seems like for Web 3.0, tokens and, and currencies are the killer app. Games are making a pretty big inroad though too, like CryptoKitties. I believe, toppled the blockchain that was on when it came out because it was so popular and the blockchain couldn't handle the transactions. But I think that it's important to remember that these are very rapidly evolving emerging technologies, right? So Ethereum's roadmap, if you look at Ethereum 2.0, is pretty aggressive. They're like, we're going to solve all of the problems with uh, distributed computing and the the, the scalability of the blockchain and like all of the, the transactions it can do. If those roadmaps play out and they're successful, it could be extremely disruptive. Like we might wake up one morning and it's practical to run giant distributed apps on Ethereum 2.1 or 2.2 or whatever. And when that day comes, I think you better be ready because a disruption will then happen rapidly when those capabilities appear. Now I think there are two things you need to think about. One is, you're right, Michael, maybe I was a little bit too aggressive in my statement of maybe you should wait. I think that any sizable company definitely needs to dip their toenail in it and at least have some understanding of it. And I think that the other, like when you said, oh, I tried to to make a basic smart contract and it was actually really hard. There's going to be a huge period of adjustment where we're realigning our labor force around Web 3.0. I remember when we went from Web 1.0 to 2.0. And all of the like the hill that I had to climb to get up on two technology. So maybe start working on your labor supplies for for when that time comes.
2: I think what you had said about e commerce. I think e commerce is potentially next. I think e commerce is an area that's really interesting to see because there you have invoicing, there you have the immutability of receipts, there you have the you have physical products that are associated to something that is in the chain. Like I think it was Shopify that recently just announced that they were partnering with another, another firm to basically build and mint NFTs so people could basically upload their doodles and their whatever cats and monkeys and, and stuff and basically mint their own NFTs and then sell them. Like that's pretty fast and that's pretty huge. But, but I think applying that to actual e-commerce, like deliverable things and stuff like that, I think is going to be potentially a huge thing because if you just look at like the clothing industry or just look at the resale industry right like you you somebody forgot mentioned that the idea of resale and being able to get something off of resale like imagine being able to buy a really expensive purse or really expensive piece of clothing and then when you go to resell it or when you go to give it away you 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 pass along the the fact that it's authentic and it's now it's, it's not fake or whatever the case is that's i think a huge part of the business that might be coming up soon Yeah,
4: it's interesting you mentioned that. Ball caps come with holograms. A signed baseball might come with a certificate of authenticity. You could totally do that on an immutable record like blockchain. But it feels so Linux came out and it was slow. I Just to fall back on that Linux analogy, there were CDs. I probably still have. I do. Stacks of Caldera CDs and Mandrake and different fun things. But now with the internet, like I I was playing with cryptozombies.io the other night just to be able to learn how to write in solidity. <laughs> I guess I'm not embarrassed to say that I'm doing something that's designed for kids to try to figure out how to get inroads in here and, and understand what it is. So I've gone to, to Udemy and bought a couple classes. I recognize even as a CTO that I don't know and I don't know what I don't know, but I can tell you that ignorance is costly too. And maybe I'll save this for another call because I got to get off. But I lost 0. 0.57 Ethereum the weekend before last. Uh, partly because I was an idiot, but partly because I trusted some things that weren't trustworthy. Like when you go in, when you go into uh, Slack and someone DMs you on a Slack channel, it's then. But if you're on a Discord server and someone DMs you, that's totally spoofed. And the precautions that... The sandbox takes, for instance, to warn their users against scams. I didn't even know. So I I can break that down for y'all. I'm writing something up later. But the last thought is some of the things that are going to be coming. So Linux was slow. There's the CDs and the distribution of stuff in boxes. Now there's the internet. You can download stuff. You can go to web pages. I, I saw yesterday someone posted, I can't wait for someone to do a Web3 version of Twitter because I'll sign up for it. Can you imagine how less toxic it might be if someone had to pay a small gas fee to tweet or press releases? You put in press releases and you were the first one to say it or patents or it's, I think it's coming, but I think it's going to hit us much, much faster than the Linux revolution did.
1: It's funny you mentioned about kids because there's, th- there's kind of two important points there. I think one is I'm speaking for myself. You guys are all, I'm sure much younger than I am, but like I'm an old man relative to my kids. And it's amazing how much of their identity and their future is tied in with like just living in the digital world, whatever we want to call it, whether we want to call it metaverse or not. And things that they find valuable are digital goods. And if all the blockchain technologies do is create digital scarcity, even that's probably a lot in terms of creating value for them. The the funny thing about what you said, Ken, about the Discord channel is my 10-year-old came to me just this last weekend. And he said, check out this scam. Cause like somebody had tried to scam him and, but he was onto it. And again, like to them, it's just this, it's just part of life. It's just not, you know, leaving your wallet out, you know, on the street to them. Of course not. Why would you trust somebody who DMs you on discord? That's crazy. So I think there's a, uh, there's like a generational gap that, that we're certainly going to have to overcome slowly and painfully.
3: So I just wanted to react to what Ken said about using a kid's tool to, to learn these uh, basic skills of writing distributed apps. And then, of course, what happened to Etienne and me, too, just trying to write a hello world. Solidity app was actually fairly challenges with the complicated stack involved with it. One of the key, like I said, one of the key things that CTOs are going to have to address is where are you going to, where where CTOs are we going to find all the people to write these apps when the bonanza comes, right? What's going to stimulate the people who are currently Web 2.0 developers, and there are of course lots of those, and even those are scarce, right? The good ones, to just all migrate to to Web 3.0 and create the supply so that you know, entrepreneurs can build new apps and we can. It seems to me like there's probably things that CTOs could be doing to start gently retraining their workforces now if they want to be ready to do a pivot when the time comes. Finding
2: people and hiring people, you're right. Like it's very hard. Like I don't know many people in this space that are actually writing their own smart contracts or actually doing this stuff outside of like the organizations and the companies that are talking about having people that are doing this. But I personally haven't met that many engineers that are actually like in this space. And so I try to attract, them. I try to bring guys in that I know are good, that maybe are working you know somewhere and I'm like, Hey, have you seen this? Have you tried this out and get them excited about that stuff as well? Because then who, who's to say that they won't get excited about it. And want to jump in on a project in the future that is around this. I think taking good engineers that you already know are worth their salt and being able to send them down this rabbit hole, so to speak, I think is a good thing for them as engineers. And it's also a good thing for you. And to quickly speak on the issue of scams, per se, like just try to put down crypto investor on in your like profile, and you will see a plethora of scams. Much the same way that you see when you say that you're a software engineer of any kind, in terms of recruiters, like like you're just going to get people wanting you to send them ETH and all this other stuff, and they're going to double your money and oh It's just a part of life. Like you're you're gonna you're gonna get people that are going to hit you up on stuff like that. And it's just a matter of teaching and training not just your kids, but surprisingly, the engineers and the people around you that don't know as much about that about these stuff to avoid these sort of scams. Yeah, that's
1: a good point, Michael. I think the thing that's interesting about the scams is, for one thing, I think you could think of it like the Wild West, right? There was all sorts of semi lawless regions in the West of the United States up until like, shockingly recently. And so that's an analogous thing. I think the from a philosophical perspective, a thing that I think crypto people sometimes mess up is the idea that this is a good thing as opposed to a bad thing, right? Like the, it seems unlikely to me that crypto-based financial ecosystems are actually going to be usable by many people. If you're getting scammed literally immutably for the rest of your life, that money's gone, right? Like currently that's the case, but I think it seems incredibly likely that we're going to have to create the mechanisms that our current legal system has around you appeal to some DAO and they get you your money back, something. Because we've converged on that as a society probably for... If
2: you've ever tried to transition between any number of marketplaces, like transitioning any amount of ETH or, or any sort of crypto of any kind, like you'll realize that there is a... Like you're, if you're going to get scammed, if you start setting up on something like Coinbase or Bitmark or QCoin. And you're, tra- especially like, like one of the overseas providers and you're trying to transfer money really over two, three levels of stuff that you have to do to be able to, to get through that. And so at, at that point, you've made a, a personal decision that you're going to check your Google authenticator. You're going to check your email. You're going to check a whole slew of things before you send that money in. But so it's, I. I I don't think that the system needs to necessarily worry about these sort of things because these sort of things happen in the real world with banks and bank accounts. And yeah, there's legal ways of coming back and getting that sort of money. But how often do those legal ways like actually get that money back? To, depending on the size of, of the funds, right? Like if an elderly person gets a hundred grand stolen or in or like the cash, like they put cash inside of like a book or something and mail it to India or something like that. Like there are limitations to what you can do. In terms of saving people from them. Yeah, but I think even just like at
1: an enterprise level, if like you can't go into JP Morgan and say, hey, give me all of the billion dollars that JP Morgan has. But yeah. like for example, FTX, just to pick a random exchange, custodies billions and billions of dollars of crypto assets. Like The idea that you're going to get a small a commando team to go in there. And just hold everybody at gunpoint until they say, transfer this money to these addresses. That seems like a very real risk if there's billions of dollars at stake, right? There's a very fundamental difference between what is doable in crypto versus not doable in crypto, especially when you talk about the level of security and protections that enterprises need in order for this to be a legitimate business decision.
0: Yeah, something that Ken said around the gas fee to tweet, do you guys remember when blockchain or Bitcoin came out and the fractional payments idea came up where it's like, hey, if you scroll down a blog post, the more you scroll, the more it's taking off this micro fraction of your Bitcoin wallet and the promise of rewarding people directly for content creation. And The same goes for this idea that was just mentioned around, hey, if you want to tweet, it's going to cost you a little something. Really sucks because it just means that the people with a lot of money will tweet a lot and the ones who don't, won't. And then I had this image in my head where it was like, imagine if this world of to participate, you all need to have a wallet and you all need to be ready to spend a little bit, even if it's a fraction of a penny or something. And then I had this image that maybe Web4 is a world where you don't have to participate with money. You can just sign up with the username and just post for free. It's just, it's, there will be a reaction to this. And what do you guys think about that? I think that the
3: first thing is that people now realize, the general public, at least in America, now realizes that they don't post for free. That they pay with their identity, they pay with their information. Getting people to switch to paying with money like, what can you pay with in Web3? You can pay with actual money, you know, some token or something. And you can also pay with work, right? Like performing some service or, or producing something. That is, a, like you say, at the end, that's a huge paradigm shift that we're just all assuming that people are going to be willing to do.
1: Yeah, Scott's exactly right. That people are have over the last five years woken up to the idea that because they don't pay for it, they are the product. But I think that the last few years have taught me that it turns out everybody's fine. You're never going to go broke assuming that people aren't going to trade something off for some convenience or for some entertainment. That, I think, is the challenge. The thing that that the current social networks have is that because it's all free, they have the network effect, right? That's the thing that sort of makes them big. That's the thing they're trying to get big. And so if you're creating some kind of a drag on that in terms of a financial reason to not post, to not get in, do you still get that
2: network effect out of it? I think that, to me, that's a very open. I think the idea that people are going to have to pull out of their own pockets to, to pay for said things, you, meaning pay the gas fee themselves, it would be equivalent to thinking that people have to pull out of their own pockets to pay your AWS fees. No, that's I don't think that's necessarily a one-to-one. I think there will be platforms that will allow people to post for free and what they have to do to allow for that will still be figured out like I did like I, I can imagine a world where and there's companies working on this for where, where they're mining with cell phones and they're not made to maybe not mining like Bitcoin because that would just be insane but mining smaller tokens mining smaller coins and stuff like that and in exchange for that cell phone processing time to some extent that the organizations the companies give people access to things so the more time you spend on your phone on a particular app doing a game or doing an activity or something the more maybe posts you earn or get or something to that effect. So I don't think that there is a, a necessarily one-to-one correlation to say that the user will have to pay for this. I think whoever figures out the advertising model on Web 3 will do very well, but it's going to be hard because, again, like we're talking about people who are moving over to this thing to avoid being being sold, being the product necessarily. So, and, and, and you're talking about wallets, and we're talking about like securing their information. So there's a lot there that could happen within the space. But I don't think you necessarily have to say that the user is going to pay for everything, that the user is going to do everything. It's just an issue of how do you transfer tokens to the user and then allow the user to use those tokens to do whatever it is that they want to do. And one last thing that I want to stop here on the issue of posting, the issue, like I think there is a plethora of people who don't want to be using the social networks. You don't want to be using Facebook. Don't want to be using Twitter despite the network effect because like they get banned, they get restricted. Like they get limited in terms of what they can say and how they can say it. And so when you give them an ecosystem that says, Hey, nobody can ban you. Nobody can block you. Nobody can tell you what not to say. Suddenly like you got people that are willing to put money down. They're willing to pay for that. They are willing to say, Hey, I, I want to be able to speak my mind and not be shut up by people. And then the, the implications of what that causes and, and what that allows for are manifest in and of themselves. I think you can already do that in web too, right? There's nothing preventing you
1: from buying a machine, connecting it to your ISP or to your whatever, maybe running it through Tor or whatever and saying whatever it is you want to say. Like, the, it seems empirically like not a lot of people care enough about that to pay for it, at least so far.
2: I do believe that people, like when you're talking about running your own servers, running your own ISP, the reason people use Twitter, the reason people use Facebook is not because they they want to run their own systems. They don't want to run their own websites. They don't want to run their own stuff. They want to be in the public discourse and, and, and responding to people and corresponding with people. The question becomes what happens when you, you can't take down an ISP, when you can't take down, like when you have a Julian Assange that is posting stuff on the blockchain and nobody is going to be able to take down what he posts on the blockchain. Because it's on the blockchain and everybody, who's going to take down Ethereum if people are posting things that, that maybe the U.S. government doesn't want them to post? So there's implications there around why somebody would want to do this and how they would want to do this that, that aren't necessarily easily answerable.
3: Yeah, it, isn't it? Isn't it true that in some ways when you p- participate in these blockchain networks, you're paying with compute, right? Like it's your, it's the work that your computer does to validate the blockchain that is your entry fee into the network. So the, you know, the the fundamental problem with that is it doesn't work right now and you can't really like these EVMs aren't efficient enough to run these giant applications yet, as far as I know. But if we can imagine a, a Facebook successor that ran on Ethereum 3.0, You're, you would be part of the back end of that. So your machine would be the part of the back end of that gigantic application. And by doing the compute, you would get access to the network, but you would also be like part owner of it. The ownership would get diluted to all the people in the, in the network, and then it, it, there would be no way to take rents off of that. And so that's what's attractive about it. But as a CTO, it's hard for me to imagine right now at this early stage of development of Web 3.0 technologies, how I, as an officer of a company, could roll such a thing out and make it monetizable for the investors of the company without diluting all that value to its users. So like how corporations are going to adapt to these models is something that I haven't quite wrapped my head around yet.
1: I think the notion that you've implicitly put in my head of, oh, I need to upgrade my computer because I'm at my post limit on crypto Facebook is like a humorous thing to think about. But I think there's a kernel of of something interesting there, which is that like the distribution of mining power is always going to be power law distributed somehow. And so like the allocation of power in these networks is different, but it doesn't mean like it's, egal- it's going to be egalitarian. I think it's incredibly unlikely for it to be egalitarian.
3: They're trying to make it like the Ethereum boys are trying to make it like really egalitarian because they're moving from proof of work, which you can centralize all these huge mining operations to proof of stake where you're not constantly feeding money into the machines that you can keep posting, but you do have some money at stake that can be taken away from you if you cheat. So I do think that the people who are designing Ethereum 2.0 are trying to address some of these problems. Not that proof of stake completely solves those problems, but I think that there is a recognition that Ethereum at least isn't ready to build these successors on. There's so many other questions.
2: And a lot of this stuff has layers, right? When you think of the layers, like you have the miners that are doing the mining and you have the nodes systems that are the interconnective tissue where a lot of this data is stored. And then you have the individual clients, right? Like when I install a wallet to my phone, I'm not, I don't have the entire blockchain on there. All of these systems have built in protocols per se, to be able to interact with one another in in, in limiting fashion, limiting ways, like what a miner can pull down isn't necessarily what a client can pull down in terms of data, right? A node has, has access to all of it. And so when you think of it in those terms, you could see a world where maybe you have a a limited subset of things on your phone that somebody with a desktop would have something completely different and what you process locally isn't necessarily what you process on a mobile device and that sort of thing And, and Who's to say that if you want to process things on your device, you're going to get tokens. But who's to say you don't decide, hey, I want to pay for a post. We have that already today within Facebook. We have that already today within Twitter in the form of sponsored tweets and in the form of sponsored posts. So the paradigm is still there. When you're talking about the egalitarian nature of being able to post, we we don't have that egalitarian, egalitarian nature of tweets and all that kind of stuff now because you still have a huge number of percentage of people who, who post and then get retweeted and who have tons of followers doing the, the primary, like large percentage of those interactions with, you know, like, like people interacting with these larger than life characters and so forth. And so I don't think, I don't think that we have the egalitarianness that we
0: think we have with our current systems today. Which is exactly why everyone's talking about Web3 is because those large voices of Web3, 3, Web3, 3, you know, and all of us are, wait, is there something What did I miss? What happened? So I get that. I want to just shift this to maybe our target audience. Uh, I was watching Ron's Gone Wrong with my kids over the weekend, a Disney movie. And basically the concept is each kid gets their own little best friend, which is a little robot, little droid. So the droid ships off the production line and then the way that you make that droid your best friend is is you put your hand on it and it scans your hand. And the droid then knows who you are and the animation shows accessing, of course, all your feeds and your data and it becomes your personalized best friend. And I was watching it with my 12-year-old and first thing he says... Is there's no way that having access to all that information about you that is that just imagine that world? Like, and he was laughing and maybe still a bit young to really understand web two. For him, the web is can I discord with my buddies? while I play games. And I just thought it was interesting that the 12-year-old was, there's no way I'm going to post this or do that, or I'm not going to put that much information about myself on the internet, basically. So there's this generation that we have spawned that looks to us probably, and there's no way I'm doing certain things on the internet, to whom a immutable database in the sky makes perfect sense. Or a locked down data by my own private key makes complete sense. To them, maybe the current Twitter vibe is completely illogical to them, because why would I do that? I have this other thing going on, and I think all of us, 40-somethings and 50-somethings, are frantically trying to figure out how it applies to our world, when maybe it's never going to apply to our construct. And so maybe the conversations we should be having is with the 12-year-olds. And I love, Augustine, that your kids are crypto And in a way, is that the audience to whom this whole Web3 thing is going to make perfect sense?
3: I think that your 12-year-old is very smart. And it certainly mirrors a lot of the same behaviors I see out of my 18-year-old. When we're looking at Gen Z and beyond, that's why we're even having Web3, because those user, those consumer behaviors are changing. And a lot of these kids are in on the con. They got it. They figured out the con. And if you can see, and I, in my view, that's what's behind Facebook's big pivot to the metaverse. They're trying to sell these digital assets. They're trying to become something that isn't just selling your information because they realize it's a failing business model. If Web3 can overcome its technological challenges, then the user base is talking
2: about the runs gone that by movie. I think I've watched that at least four times since it launched on Friday my kids sex So I, I, I'm very familiar with that movie's <laughs> movie story point at this point. Uh, but one of the things that I find interesting about that movie specifically is this idea, not only that, that your kid brought up that, hey, I'm not sharing all my information, but the movie itself is anti that. Right? Like it, it promotes the idea of, hey, just go out in the woods and just play, right? Like, you don't need to be hyper-connected to everything. You don't need to be be hyper-situated with everything. And I I don't know if even the 20-year-olds are ready for this. Kids will always do the opposite of what their parents do. So if they're ki- if there are kids out there who are growing up with parents who are on Twitter all the time, who are on Facebook all the time, we're constantly gonna getting into flame wars. We're constantly talking politics. We're constantly doing all this other stuff. They're gonna try to do the opposite. They're gonna try to avoid what their parents think is cool and with with you know and and that may be Web three. It may not be Web three. But I think the benefit might be getting kids involved a little bit earlier. Like we we had a little bit of a game. Like there's a Crypto wallet Flutter application that I was playing with earlier called uh, Payment, at Pay Mint, and uh, and I installed it, you know, ran it, compiled it on my machine, installed it for my kids. I was doing Flutter work previously on the, at the Pentagon. And I stole it from my kids, and, and that's where we've been trying to learn to do their allowances. So I think getting kids familiar with this stuff, getting your kids familiar with this sort of stuff, early on, we'll, tell, we'll give you that information. We'll tell you whether they think this is boring, annoying, like interesting. Yeah. And, and so far, they have not had that much interest. Maybe they're
0: too young. One thing I'm thinking, Michael, is I wish I could explain Web 2 to my children my 12-year-old, 10-year-old, and 8-year-old. And, and I wish I could explain it in a way where they get it in, in, in terms probably way more than I even assumed they'd probably get it and then juxtapose that with what Web3's promise is, and then have them like, oh, let's discuss. I actually want their input because I think their input is going to be key to helping me understand. And I tweeted this. It wasn't a very popular tweet, but I was saying our children have been trained for the metaverse since they were born. Roblox, uh, Fortnite, Minecraft, those are worlds right? in which The value of finding things is palpable and changes people's lives, the skins business for Fortnite. So really, our children, having conversations with them will probably help us understand where this is all going for people like like myself who was entrenched in the days where I had to download free BSD images, put them on a bootable CD so I could get rid of my Windows install and rooted into the beautiful BSD install, to so, so so that's where I'm excited to have this dialogue with my children.
1: I feel exactly the same thing when I talk to my kids. It's the exact same conversation. I tried. I try to. Sometimes I'll be honest, like it just it bores me. So I've got to be in the right mental state. But I try very hard to understand what excites them and what interests them, because it's almost always something that is at least a little bit surprising to me. And I think that feeling of surprise about what they find interesting in the context of this online world that we're talking about, I think is a strong indicator of what's the next thing that should be facilitated or built or whatever.
3: You guys are having conversations with your 12-year-olds, but Gen Z is very socially conscious and they are concerned about things like inequality. And they are concerned about the, how power has been centralized in the hands of a very few Silicon Valley tech titans. My daughter loves that song from the Bo Burnham special, Jeffrey Bezos, right? Which is a critique of why Jeffrey Bezos would pile up all this money, et cetera. So these are things that she's passionate about. And Web3 technologies fall right in that pocket. In fact, embedded in the features of Web3 technologies are a social critique, right? If you're trying to build a distributed finance financial network, then the the implied social critique is that the centralized ones aren't working that well or there are problems with the centralized one. And I could say the same thing about all of this data winding up in the hands of a few small corporations. I do believe that social issues like that are one of the main things that are going to drive people to Web3 technologies and, and distributed apps that are built on those platforms.
2: Those are the things that, that future customers are going to care about. You just describe your number one customer base that's already interested in Web3 and is already planning on working with them. So I think that's a perfect description of who you, as an organization, as a company, who you should be going after as a, as a customer market fit.
0: Thank you for listening. That was Michael Bastos, Scott Graves, Ken Cohn, Augustine LeBron. And if you want to get connected with us, go check out 7ctos.com. And it would be great if you could review this podcast and leave a star rating for us. It helps get us on the map. See you next week.